Hey everyone, I'm Jim Ambusky, and this is Conversations at the Washington Library. In the 18th and 19th centuries, North Americans looked up at the sky in wonder at the cosmos and what lay beyond the Earth's atmosphere. But astronomers like Benjamin Banneker, Georgia's surveyors, Cherokee storytellers, and government officials also saw in the stars ways to master space on Earth by controlling the heavens above. And print technology became a key way for Americans of all stripes to understand their own place in the universe and their relationship to each other. On today's show, Dr. Gordon Fraser joins me to discuss his new book, Star Territory, Printing the Universe in 19th Century America, published by University of Pennsylvania Press in 2021. Frazier is lecturer and presidential fellow in American Studies at the University of Manchester in England, and we're joined today by Dr. Alexander Montgomery as guest co-host, who is heading up the Washington Library's Argo Initiative. And yes, we do talk about aliens. So get out your telescopes and let's explore star territory with Dr. Gordon Frazier. Gordon, thanks very much for joining us all the way from Manchester, although we're looking at you from a computer screen. We're delighted to have you here with us to talk about your book, Star Territory. And I should note before we really dive in that our postdoctoral fellow, Alexander Montgomery, is joining us as co-host today. And we've decided that she's going to play bad cop. Uh, yes. and we'll, we'll see how that looks over the course of our, our discussion today. Happy to be here and be unnecessarily hostile. <laughs> Excellent. Well, Gordon, I was really excited when this book came across my radar because there's two things I love. One is history and the other is space. And if I could do math confidently in a way that wouldn't get people killed, I would be an aerospace engineer. And so history is kind of like my fallback career, I guess you could say. But the book brings together two things that I find delightful, and I'm really excited to talk about all of the different components of it today. I wanted to start, though, by asking kind of a big philosophical question. When you look up in the night sky, what do you see? That is a big question. Well, first, thank you very much for having me. I'll start with a story. So it didn't occur to me until I was about halfway through my doctoral dissertation focusing on outer space that I had this very kind of vivid experience when I was maybe nine or 10 years old. I lived in a small town, but it was, you know, a lot of artificial light. And so I got used to a particular look of the night sky. But I grew up in New Hampshire, and I was out camping with my family. And I looked up at the sky, and it was the first time I'd really, truly seen the Milky Way in all its vividness. And when I was thinking about that during my doctoral dissertation, I realized that I was seeing what a 19th century person would have seen when they looked up at the night sky. I was seeing it without the artificial light. And when I looked up at the sky for most of my life, and, and even today, I see artificial light, and I see a few stars, and I can pick out some constellations. But for many of these 19th century people, when they looked up, they would have been inhabiting they would have seen themselves as inhabiting a very different universe than you or I inhabit kind of on a daily basis, living in cities or towns. Would Americans, uh, North Americans, I should say, because there's a constellation of actors here in your story, when they looked up at this guy in the 18th and 19th century, how did they make sense of it, both from a scientific standpoint, but also, I think, actually much more importantly, in some ways, from a cultural standpoint? That's what's so interesting about the story I try to tell in the book that it was never entirely a scientific perspective, even when it was putatively a scientific perspective. So when I think about the early Republic and these very early efforts to either train surveyors and astronomers or to use surveying and astronomy to map spaces, for instance, Washington, D.C., that always went hand in hand with this kind of metaphorical discussion of the United States. I mean, the most obvious example is the U.S. flag, which from 1777 onward was covered in stars because the Continental Congress said, that 
the United States would be a new constellation in the firmament of nations. And one of the first U.S. warships was called the Constellation. Coins bore the imprint Nova Constellatio, or New Constellation. And in a fascinating letter, uh, Francis Hopkinson, who was a signer of the Declaration of Independence, he compares the new American empire to a new planet in the solar system. And he has this 18th century theory of planet formation, which involves um, matter being spun off from the sun to produce planets. Now, that's not precisely how planets are made. But he imagined that that was the case. And so he imagined this new empire being spun off from the British Empire. And so even as people are speaking scientifically or trying to use scientific tools for nationalist projects, it always is going hand in hand. That behavior is always going hand in hand with these metaphorical or almost kind of quasi-spiritual ways of thinking about the cosmos in relation to human lives. You make the point in the opening sequences of your book that really we should be thinking of this period as the true first American space race. What's the thinking behind that? How do you see this as more significant in some ways than the 1950s and 1960s when we're sending rockets up there? I don't necessarily think that it's more significant, but I think that because it's overlooked, it's important that we think about this early 18th and 19th century space age now. Because when I think about the 1960s, this era of sending rockets up, the language of that era is the language of the frontier. John Kennedy famously gives the new frontier speech when he accepts the Democratic nomination in California. And he says, I'm standing here on the last frontier, California, and I'm looking toward the new frontier, which will be the future, it will be computers, it will be space, it will be, be nuclear development. And so the space age era is imagined as a continuation of the 19th century. And we can think that's just a metaphor, but it's really, it's not a crazy way of thinking about the Apollo era. Mm -hmm. Because these men, and usually it's men who are being launched, it's always men who are being launched in rockets. These men are co-opting a frontier mythology. And that frontier mythology was part of the expansion of a land empire that itself depended on astronomy, surveying, map making, and all of these activities that were very much engaged with outer space. Yeah, that was a part of your book that I found the most compelling. And I was wondering if you could talk a little bit more, because there is an interesting tension between sort of that trend where there's this idea of a mastery of space is a sort of imperial project. A master space is necessary to create the things that you need in order to take over land territory. We can also think about it in a more direct way in terms of like the space imperialism of the, of the 1960s. But that kind of exists in tension with space as like a space, space is a space of um, all kinds of different possible imagined futures. And one of the things you really do well in the book is look at all these different communities that are using space in slightly different ways. So I was wondering if you'd speak a little bit to that tension and how space can kind of be a national imperialist project, but also possibly a liberatory one. Um, I'm really glad you asked that question, because really what the book tries to do is follow not just the nationalist project, but these other communities. Um, the first black publishers in the United States, uh, the Cherokee Nation uh, publication efforts that deal with outer space, the Hawaiian nationalist movement. And one of the things that's really striking, if I step back for a moment, is that we often think about the Earth's ecology as separate from outer space. And that's a completely reasonable assumption. We haven't been able to get to outer space until very recently in human history. As far as we know, there's no life outside of the Earth, although perhaps we may discover some soon. And so we tend to think of the Earth's ecology as this little bubble where we work out our political issues. And then outer space is this separate location. And what struck me when I started reading a lot of these writers in the 19th century was that they don't think about outer space that way. And this goes for, for instance, Cherokee writers who 
have a very easy time imagining that the universe is people then inhabited. And they don't necessarily know who's peopling the universe, but they assume probably there are people. And it also goes for people like more well-known in our kind of particular educational discourse, people like Henry David Thoreau, who very much imagined that the planet Venus, for instance, was its own ecology. And we don't know anything about it, but we know that there's an ecology there. And so we should think about that as an ecological space. And so when we start to do that, we start to compress the idea, we start to compress spaces. We start to think, well, well, Texas can be a little bit like Mars, you know, or Jupiter, that these are just other spaces. And then the question becomes, what is our ethical relationship to those spaces? And if we're willing to conquer Texas and turn it into a slave state, then presumably we're willing to conquer lots of places and turn them into slave states. And we should reflect on that. We should reflect on our relationship to all space. And that means Texas and that means the moon. That's really interesting, and especially the ethical relationship between the two. And you had mentioned surveying. Surveying is a huge component of how people like George Washington, other early Americans, Cherokee, are thinking about and attempting to claim space, define space, defend space. What is the relationship between surveying and the starscapes you describe? How are they using the heavens in order to actually map on the ground these places that they're trying to define? When I first started this project, I really knew very little about surveying. And so I thought the relationship was going to be very easy to explain. I thought every single surveyor is going to be looking up at the stars, and that's going to be an absolutely easy relationship to create. And what I realized is that most ordinary 19th century and late 18th century surveyors are not doing that. They have fixed monuments that are on the earth. They know where those are, and they're relating, they're creating space in that way. But then I found some of the more sophisticated surveyors were absolutely doing that work. And mm. so an example from the first chapter of my book is Andrew Ellicott, who laid out Washington, D.C. with the help mm -hmm. of a, an assistant, Benjamin Banneker, who was a mm -hmm. self-taught black astronomer. And in the case of Ellicott and Banneker, they had a zenith sector. And a zenith sector is basically a telescope that points straight up at the sky. And it measures when celestial bodies pass the zenith or the point directly overhead. And they used the zenith sector measurements to create those fixed monuments from which they could measure and map the rest of the city. And Banneker's job was actually to maintain the Zenith sector. He was the one who, who was responsible for making sure that it was accurate and that the clock that they were using alongside the, the Zenith sector was accurate. And so in some of these more sophisticated surveyors, they absolutely were looking directly at the night sky. But in all of the surveys, the surveyors are thinking about the earth essentially as a rotating body in space. You're thinking about the earth as a body that has a relationship to the rest of the universe. And then you're trying to map and divide that body in various ways for instrumental reasons. Can you tell us a little bit about Benjamin Banneker? His name pops up in school texts every once in a while, but I would imagine most folks don't know much about him beyond that. Tell us a little bit about his astronomical background. He's a fascinating figure in part because the way he came into the popular imagination was really quite misleading. So Banneker was a self-taught astronomer. He was born free in Maryland as a free black person. His father, very cleverly, was a landowner and had put his son on the deed of ownership when he bought the farm that he owned, when his son was just an infant, when Benjamin Banneker was an infant. His father feared, rightly, that black people would cease to be able to inherit. And so by putting his son on the deed of ownership, it meant that this infant child owned the land all through his childhood. And then when his father passed away, he owned the land. And this gave him some degree of autonomy, gave Banneker some degree of autonomy in his life. He lived near the Ellicott family, which was this very wealthy family, but they were also very scientifically minded. 
And because he demonstrated mathematical ability from an early age, he was gifted some astronomy textbooks, a table and a telescope, just a few odds and ends items. But with those, he was able to train himself in astronomy to the point where he was able to create an ephemeris, which is a predictive map of the movements of bodies in the solar system for the coming year. And it's the building block of an almond. And from there, his astronomical renown, basically, in the local community leads to some manumissionist backers in Philadelphia publishing his almanac. The almanac spreads from there. It also leads to him being hired by Andrew Ellicott when Ellicott is assigned to survey Washington, D.C. To what extent does Banneker's notoriety begin to challenge perceptions of African-American inferiority? I'm, I'm thinking about Jefferson. He, he writes to Banneker and says, hey, you're proof of the fact that I think he says, quote, our black brethren are capable of uplifting themselves or being on par intellectually with white people. The Jefferson-Banneker relationship is a fascinating one because Banneker writes to Jefferson, he writes a letter, and Jefferson replies, saying exactly what you're pointing out. He says that you, Banneker, are proof that Black people are capable of, of higher mathematics. Earlier, Jefferson had said in notes on the state of Virginia that he thought it was unlikely that Black mm. people would be capable of higher mathematics. That letter is then used essentially against Jefferson. So the letter that he sends to Banneker gets passed on to the manumissionist backers of Banneker, the ones who were publishing his almanac in Philadelphia. They then publish Jefferson's letter without his permission. And this puts Jefferson in a bind politically because one constituency immediately begins attacking Jefferson because he's too anti-slavery. So William Lowton Smith, a South Carolina congressman, says something along the lines of, what should we think of a secretary of state who sends epistles promising, quote, Negroes good wishes on their speedy emancipation or some, something along those lines? Mm -hmm. And so he gets attacked that way. He also gets attacked basically for being a hypocrite, saying one thing in private about slavery and saying other things in public. And Jefferson is a working politician. And so he tries to manipulate the situation. He writes to the Marquis de Condorcet and mm -hmm. takes credit for hiring Banneker, which was technically true because Jefferson was Secretary of State. Jefferson is trying to play all angles here as a working politician. And when it comes out that his private correspondence doesn't match his public writing, he's attacked essentially from all sides. I want to talk a little bit about almanacs. Uh, you mentioned it just mm -hmm. briefly here a moment ago. Yes. Almanacs are fun things for historians. Uh, I would suspect a lot of people who are not in the guild, when they hear almanac, they think, oh, poor Richard's almanac. You know, mm -hmm. that's, a, that's a fun one, right? But almanacs are a delicious source of information about how people are thinking about themselves, their relationship to others, how they're orienting themselves in space and time. Can you tell us a little bit about what makes up an almanac in the late 18th, early 19th century? If, if I had gone down to the local tavern and purchased one, what would I have found in it? Well, yeah, you're, you're absolutely right. They're absolutely fascinating. And I was trained as a literary scholar. And so I was focused on novels and poetry. And then when mm -hmm. I saw the numbers of almanacs that were being published in the early Republic, I thought to myself, this is where the, the literature is happening. There's the orders of magnitude more almanacs published than, than really anything else. And if you'd bought one in the late 18th century, the early 19th century, it would have been this miscellany of important and weirdly ephemeral information. So you would have found at the most basic level predictions about the future. When would the tides come in? When would the moon be waxing or waning? Um, when would you find the sunrise in your particular location? So essentially a, a celestial prediction of the future. But interwoven with that, you would have found weather reports from the future based on last year's weather or 10 years ago's weather. 
Um, and these are quite funny because when you look at them in the archive, you'll see things like the weather is predicted as uh, sunny and clear, and people will have written in the margin things like terrible hurricanes. <laughs> um, so, so weather reports were not terribly accurate. Um, and you would have found uh, zodiac information predicting things about either the human body or the human future. Um, you would have found stories and poems. One predicts that the America would dissolve one of Banneker's almanacs. Now, Banneker didn't write this. This was written by somebody else in his mm -hmm. almanac, but a short uh, kind of quasi-poem predicting the destruction of the United States under its third president, which turned out to be Jefferson. And so what you end up with is this kind of weird miscellany of all kinds of different information, descriptions of how the world works, but also predictions of the future. Yeah, no, I really appreciated your uh, work with almanacs in the book. And as an 18th century historian, I've never quite known what to do with them. They're ubiquitous. There's a lot of them. And there are these very strange documents, as you've just sort of spoken to. And you touched on this a little bit when you were talking about how you'll see people interjecting comments about how the weather report was wrong. But one of the things that I've always noticed about almanacs, and which you do discuss in the book, is that they are magnets for people to sort of insert themselves onto. Mm. Lots of almanacs have lots of uh, marginal notes. People are using them as diaries. People are marking them up in all kinds of interesting ways. Could you speak a little bit more about that? It's fascinating because some of them, as you're pointing out, some of them you could have even bought from the printer interleaved. And so every other page in the almanac would have been a blank page for you to write your diary or your kind of day-to-day -day account of your life. Um, in one of them, uh, held by uh, Christopher Columbus Baldwin, who um, was a figure associated with the creation of the American Antiquarian Society, Baldwin records the death of his mother. Um, he describes her circumstances when she died, and then he puts in that her maiden name was Abigail Wareforce, and he gives a little account of her life. And so this becomes the memorial to his mother, and it's in an almanac. It's next to when the sunrise will be and what the weather will be. I mean, I think that they had a few things going for them for 18th century people. One, they're ubiquitous. They're a thing you're going to buy anyway to describe the weather and the sunrises. And they're an account of time. You know, they're an account of what this year will be in relation to all the other years. And so as you live that year, it becomes a natural place to say, well, on this day, they predicted good weather, and then it wasn't good weather. And on this day, my mother died, and I want to account for that. And so our relationship with time is really bound up with our relationship to the universe and to the cosmos and the stars and the earth and the weather and all of these things. And so the almanacs become a kind of a whole universe in a printed text that people can interact with. I wanted to ask you about the temple dimension, because as I was reading your book and you discuss quite well this relationship of time, it, it's almost like a kind of preliminary theory of relativity in a sense, where people are using these things to orient themselves in a particular space, both geographically and then temporally, but then they're, they're relating themselves to some other fixed point or some other group of people who were at a distant place. Can you talk a little bit about then how, as you're looking at these vast archives of almanacs and making sense of them, you began to see the map, as it were, of how people are doing this and thinking about themselves both spatially and in time as well. Yeah, that's a really interesting question. I mean, I feel like in our conversation, we've been circling around mapping. And at some level, it seems to me that this is what the almanacs are doing. And this is what a lot of the texts I talk about in the book are doing, which is that human beings are, are confronted when they look at the universe. We are confronted by an undifferentiated reality. And we can only do things with that reality or make sense of that reality if we map it. And that means highlighting certain elements of that undifferentiated reality and ignoring others. And that creates real problems for us. You know, uh, there, famously, there's a philosopher, James C. Scott, who writes a book, Seeing Like a State. 
And he points out one of the problems that states have when they map things is they say, well, we want to harvest the oak trees. So they look at a forest and they only see the oak trees. They kill everything else. And then suddenly the oak trees are struck by a blight because they've ignored the fact that there's a complicated ecology here. Mm -hmm. And so you see that a lot when people make maps. They look at an undifferentiated reality. They highlight the things they're interested in. And then they, they are inadvertently destructive. But map making itself isn't necessarily bad. In fact, it's the thing we have to do in order to interact with the world at all. Mm -hmm. And so when I look at early almanacs, it seems to me that what I'm seeing are people in an ad hoc way trying to make sense of the universe by creating these maps. Well, how does the death of my mother relate to the weather, relate to when the moon is full, relate to politics relate to how long it will take me to get to Baltimore. Like all of these things that you get in the almanac, it's a map of the world at individual human scale. Here am I, and here's how the universe, all of it, relates to me. And then when we're talking about enslaved people who are in the southern states or or states where there still is slavery, illegal slavery, how are they using this kind of knowledge, both in written form, but then literally looking up at the sky and benefiting from the collective knowledge that's been gained uh, over the course of the decades thinking about these problems? How are they using that to their advantage to try to make their escape? Well, one of the things that's fascinating is that you don't have enslaved people who are getting access to a lot of almanacs necessarily. And so my initial thinking was that this was all folk knowledge that was passed between people. And what I found when I looked at Freedom's Journal, which is the first black newspaper published in the United States, it's published in New York. And I initially read it as this kind of New York document. You know, it's, it's talking about New York and a few northern cities, Philadelphia, Baltimore, Boston. And when you start to look at it, you realize that they're transmitting this newspaper through agents to the South and mm. not just southern cities, not just not just uh, New Orleans, but they're transmitting it to rural southern places like deep in North Carolina, rural areas in Virginia. And so what you see very quickly is that printed information from the North was getting to enslaved people in the South. We have some documentary evidence of people reading that newspaper aloud. Uh, so one African-American person who can read, reading it aloud to scores of other people who can read and of transmitting that information by passing the newspaper along. And so what emerges in the newspaper then is all of this information about outer space, about comets and constellations. And you start to think, gosh, this has a lot of functions. One of them is it's a mode of navigation and it's being transmitted through print to enslaved people in the South. Now, that's not the only way that enslaved people were getting access to celestial information. We have evidence of other ways that that information was being passed. But it is striking that northern abolitionists in the 1840s and 1850s recount frequently stories of enslaved people escaping by the stars. It's almost become a kind of like a folk myth that you look up at the night sky and you follow, you follow the Big Dipper toward freedom. And at some level, that's mythological and that's a fantasy produced by abolitionists. But there is evidence that it really did happen. I mean, there were lots of people who really did use celestial navigation to make their way through the world and to escape. Is it your sense then that the publishers and the editors of, of these black newspapers, are they consciously aware that by including information like this, that there's a possibility that they can transmit a kind of um, coordinate map, as it were, or they can inform discussions amongst enslaved people who are thinking about self-emancipating? 
you know, partly, I think their goal was to create a kind of navigational map, but I think they had other goals as well. And I'll just give two quick examples. So first, Samuel Cornish, who was the first editor of Freedom's Journal, one of the first two editors, he later creates his own newspaper called The Rights of All. And in that newspaper, he creates a scientific department. And his idea is that we need to educate all of our readers, um, enslaved or free, we need to educate all of our readers about science because a deep scientific education will allow people to think politically. And so they can think in terms of the rise and fall of empires. They can think in terms of how civilizations progress or don't progress. That all requires scientific and ecological knowledge. So he creates the scientific department. But there's another example that I think is even more vivid. John Russworn, who was co-editor originally of Freedom's Journal, and then he was the last editor of Freedom's Journal. When he's editor, he promotes the poetry of a, a Black poet named George Moses Horton, who was an enslaved poet. So he lived under slavery in North Carolina. He initially couldn't read and write. He learned that over time, but his initial poems were composed in his head. He listened to Methodist hymns. He over time taught himself and, and with some help learned to read and write. But he wrote these poems and the poems were transmitted to Freedom's Journal and published by Freedom's Journal. And what's fascinating about the poems is they are all about exuberant flight and uplift and and the air and outer space and astronomy. I mean, he has this very vivid portrayal of space. And that portrayal of space is really not about how do I, in practical terms, get freedom. It's about how do I feel free as a person who is in the universe and part of the universe. And this poetry is being transmitted from an enslaved person in North Carolina to readers of Freedom's Journal in New York or Boston or Philadelphia or even in the South. And so it's this fascinating example of a relationship to space and to the cosmos that isn't merely instrumental, but that is actually trying to theorize freedom. That's really fascinating. It gets back to that point you were making earlier about thinking about this as a whole ecology, not simply as distinct parts, but we're all part of the universe and the universe is part of us in some ways. Yeah. Yeah. And, and it's it's funny because we, in our language, we create this boundary, right? That mm -hmm. there's, a, there's a point in the atmosphere, the ionosphere, and that's where Earth ends and space begins. But like so many borders and maps, it's fictional, right? We imagine that there's a, a hard boundary that you begin in outer space, but it's a fictional boundary. And we see this with um, billionaires launching themselves into orbit, <laughs> right? That there's this argument of whether, did, you know, did Richard Branson really get into space? Does, did Jeff Bezos go high enough into outer space? Um, these arguments, they're silly because, yeah. because space doesn't begin in any particular place. We just say that it begins in a particular place. Uh, we create, like in so many other areas, like we create artificial boundaries and borders. The next natural question is, have you uh, booked your ride on SpaceX or Virgin Galactic or one of the I, other I services? I think that may be a little bit out of my price range. Um, <laughs> I mean, if the book sells really well, maybe maybe that I'll use the money for that. Excellent. Well, we're, we're going to try to move as much product as we can. We get you, okay, we get you a ride on one of those things. For all listeners, please consider purchasing a copy of Star Territory immediately so we can achieve our goal of sending Gordon Fraser to space. <laughs> oh, oh, God, what have I gotten myself into? <laughs> um, if I can bop back for a quick second to the mapping question. So my work uh, with Mount Vernon um, and with the Leventhal Center is in putting together this online portal of different geographic depictions of North America in the latter half of the 18th century. And you know, part of the reason why I'm on this is that there is this interesting relationship between that kind of mapping and uh, the kind of star knowledge and different conceptions of space, and the cosmos that you've talked about. So in, in, in some senses, this is kind of a rephrase of things we've already talked about. 
But to put a fine point on it, if you were approaching that kind of project, you know, if you were in my position trying to put together Argo, what do you see as the connection between some of these you know, very literal maps of here is a map of the United States, here is a map of North America, and the kinds of things you talk about in your book? And also, what kinds of things would you want to see included that might reveal some of those connections in a way that might not be obvious to someone who does not have your depth of expertise on this question? I think in terms of what I would want to see, or what maybe what I, what I needed to see in my own research, and it took me a while to see, is exactly how these maps are produced. Because it seems to me that the, the material practices of map making and the goal of the map making process both shaped the map in really radical ways. And so I, I read a lot about Georgia surveying when I was working on the chapter about the Cherokee. And what took me a while to kind of get my head around was that a lot of the Georgia surveyors that were hired weren't actually very good. They needed a lot of surveyors quickly. <laughs> and so what they did was that, and there's the wonder, I wish I could remember the title of it. There's a wonderful book that's a really granular history of Georgia surveying in the um, 19th century. And when I was reading that book, it became kind of fascinating. Like, what do you do when you have to make maps of the space and you don't have enough qualified map makers? Mm. Um, and you give a kind of rough and ready training you know, here's the equipment, here's the chain that you that you drag out, and here's how, here's how you write the numbers down, and then you send people out. And in that case, the map making is shaped by really two things. One is the state of Georgia trying to seize Cherokee land, and the other that the Georgia surveyors who were hired oftentimes weren't top quality surveyors, they weren't trained in the latest methods. And so what you end up with are these very different, it's kind of an uneven reality. This area is mapped quite well, this area is mapped poorly. And the, the model of reality that gets produced across the culture is, is lumpy. And for someone like me, and I'm used to, so Google Maps, I'm used to a perhaps inaccurate depiction of reality, but of kind of a precisely even depiction of reality. And what struck me about the 18th and the 19th century is the lumpiness of the, of the mm. map-making process and the way things don't line up together. A uh, quick aside on this, there was a complaint in 1823, the uh, U.S. Congress ordered a study of maps in the United States, and they reported that the maps didn't line up, that, <laughs> that if you tried to follow, especially sea routes, if you tried to follow a sea route from Washington, D.C. to New Orleans, and you followed the maps they had precisely, you wouldn't end up in New Orleans. Um, and the reason people oh. got to New Orleans was because the navigators knew what they were doing because they had a practically reality-based view. But they're borrowing oh, maps from the French and from the British and some of their own maps, and they're trying to suture them all together and make a reality, a model of reality, and it doesn't, it doesn't work, it doesn't line up. And that's, I think, something that's strange about this period, as much as the kind of um, imperialist, um, the kind of the open imperialist desire, um, the lumpiness of the realities is striking to me. Yeah, that's a, that's a fantastic point. Maybe I could use this as a, as a jumping off point to get into a little bit of your work um, on the Cherokee mm -hmm. specifically. You open that chapter with this really striking anecdote about a Cherokee family sitting on their farm and all of a sudden these surveyors appear and they're measuring their land and they start marking directly on their house. Very, very striking to me. So if you could talk a little bit more about that part of your work and where the Cherokee come into this story. I was really struck by, by the Cherokee project. So the Cherokee, beginning really in 1809, they start, Cherokee leaders start to realize, and they're living in, for people who aren't kind of aware of the original Cherokee Nation, it's in present-day Georgia, North Carolina. And the Cherokee Nation in 1809 begins this project of reform. And what they realize is that they are a political community that doesn't match other political communities in the 19th century, which are defined by governments, constitutions, recognized borders. And so their strategy is to essentially reform governance to make it recognizable so that they can interact with 
for instance, the United States, and assert claims. And so they begin this project of reform. And part of the project of reform is, or two parts of it, are publication and education. And so they order the publication, the Cherokee government orders the publication of um, the Cherokee Phoenix, which is the first newspaper to be published by an indigenous nation. And they also bring in missionaries to trained students. One of the things that's really striking to me is that astronomy plays a big role here. Um, there's a lot of astronomical information in the newspaper, and there's significant astronomical information being conveyed to students in their education. One Cherokee leader says he's looking forward to the day when we can say that this astronomer was a Cherokee. They have this vision that this will happen. And it makes sense because the claims against the Cherokee were being made astronomical. The claim was you know, Georgia surveyors would come in and they would say, actually, this isn't Cherokee land. This is this is Georgia land. Um, this land belongs to, to the people of Georgia, not the Cherokee people. And so to be able to contest those claims, you really need to know the language of your adversary and the kind of mode of thinking of your adversary. Mm -hmm. And so there's significant astronomical education. And years later, after the Trail of Tears, which displaces the Cherokee to the present-day Cherokee nation in, in Oklahoma, Years after that, some Cherokee remain in Georgia and North Carolina, and an American sociologist, a white man, interviews Cherokee people. This is several generations after the reform era, and he asks them questions, and some of the questions are about space, and he asks things like, um, what are the stars like? And he gets these fascinating answers because I think they were having a little fun mm -hmm. with him because they'll first tell a story and they'll say, well, um, in ancient times, there were there were spook hunters. And they came across um, creatures that had terrapin heads with silver fur. And at nighttime, the silver fur would wave in the breeze and it would sparkle and it would twinkle. And one day, the terrapins ascended to the heavens. And so if you want to know what stars are like, I'll tell you. They're flaming balls of gas that planets orbit. <laughs> <laughs> and so what you see are people engaging with, engaging with both ancient stories, ancient traditions, mm -hmm. but also like they're modern people. They're perfectly well acquainted with theories of planet formation and how stars work and, and things like that. Well, it's fascinating because it provides a lot of insight to how Cherokee and other peoples thought about the formation of the universe and, and how we can use those kinds of stories to track back across time if we don't have written records. Uh, they're thinking on astronomical developments and finding comets and things like that. That part of your book, it was absolutely fascinating to me how, yeah, they were probably having some fun with them, but they're holding those two things at the same time. And both are equally valid mm -hmm. in their conception of how the universe is formed and how it exists and operates. Yeah, I think that's absolutely true because what you see are people who I mean, this is true of the Cherokee, but it's true of others as well. People who who recognize that you can hold kind of multiple epistemologies in your head mm -hmm. at the same time. And that no map of the universe is actually an accurate map. It's always a human construction that's there to do particular things. Mm -hmm. And so a kind of hidebound adherence to a particular artificial abstraction that helps you understand the universe is is not necessarily going to be helpful. It's going to blind you to other elements of that that reality that that aren't visible on the map. Let's go to Hawaii for just a moment. Uh, one, because it's cold here in Virginia. I bet it's cold there in Manchester. Let's go to Hawaii. Yeah. <laughs> Let's talk a little bit about how the Hawaiians are using the universe. Yeah. So just for, for people who aren't familiar with this history, um, I'll just give a quick kind of recap. Over the course of the 19th century, there are a number of, of white, either American or European settlers in Hawaii who buy up land, who run sugar plantations, who do have other business ventures in Hawaii. This group had always had some problems with the Hawaiian government, with, which is a monarchy. 
the head of the Hawaiian state is the Ali'i Aimoku, um, although usually that person would be referred to in Western sources as the king of the queen. And so in 1893, the queen, uh, or Ali'i Aimoku, Lili Okalani, she tries to reform the constitution, and she's overthrown in essentially a coup d'etat, um, where white sugar planters who are nominally part of the legislative branch of the government basically overrule her and they seize the government. The United States is unclear about its position, and because of that, Lily Okalani thinks that she has a legal claim against the United States, where the U.S. will restore her. So in 1893, she doesn't try to fight back militarily. She accepts the coup and then launches a legal claim. But when the legal claim starts to founder, and she realizes that she has to take a different approach, she adopts several strategies simultaneously. But one of them that I'm fascinated by, and maybe it's a kind of a minor strategy, an element in her toolkit, but I'm fascinated by it, is she publishes a document called the Kumulipa. And this is the Hawaiian creation chant. It's the account of the creation of the universe with all of the descendants of that first creation ending with her that the royal Hawaiian line traces its lineage to the beginning of the universe. And she publishes it in English, and obviously it's an originally a Hawaiian, a Hawaiian um, oral text that had been published before in Hawaiian. Mm-hmm. She publishes it in English, and she transmits it as a gift to allies and enemies. I think in one case, there's a decided enemy that she transmits it to as a kind of, <laughs> as a kind of remember who's in charge here. Um, <laughs> But she transmits this book, it's privately printed, and she gives it away. She gives it to senators or congresspeople, we think. She gives it to one university. She gives it to the Library of Congress. She gives it to several scholarly societies, several activists. And the book becomes a kind of a calling card that establishes the authority of the Hawaiian monarchy. What's fascinating about the translation, and and I don't read Hawaiian, but I've looked at the other translations done by Hawaiian language scholars who, who do read Hawaiian. What's fascinating about the translations they've done is that Lily Okalani very clearly changed her translation to align it with contemporary, 19th century contemporary theories of planet formation. There was a theory called the nebular hypothesis about planet formation. And so when she talks about how the Earth was created, it is the nebular hypothesis. And when you compare it to other translations, you'll see that she she hasn't lied. She's used the original language, but she's framed it in such a way that it would lead a reader to conclude that the Hawaiians are really onto something here in ancient times that really aligns with cutting-edge 19th century science. And then in the introduction, she says, you know, you'll notice that this text aligns with 19th century science. We knew this before you knew this. And we have a real claim here, not just to national autonomy, which we do, but also to a a position of authority. And so it's this fascinating move that she makes. And she's handing this book out while she's lobbying the U.S. Congress to return the Hawaiian islands to the Hawaiian monarchy and Hawaiian people. The document sounds fascinating. And I think what you've just described is what the kids these days would call a boss move. I mean, that's yeah, pretty, yeah. yeah, it was a boss move. <laughs> mm-hmm. What's the thing that surprised you the most when you were working on this project? I got surprised a lot, but I'll tell you one of the earliest things that really surprised me. Working on the very first chapter, I was reading this pamphlet put out by an astronomer named Bartholomew Burgess, and it's about comets. And he's predicting the appearance of a comet. And the comet never appears, but it wasn't because he was wrong. The comet broke up. It's really out there. They just couldn't see it. So Bartholomew Burgess publishes this pamphlet predicting the appearance of a comet. And in the back of the pamphlet, he has this section. And this is 1789. And he has this section where he says, uh, some people have asked if 
there are, he doesn't use this word phrase, but I'm going to, if there are space aliens on comets. And he gives it some careful consideration and quotes some sources. And he says, basically, uh, yeah, it's plausible. And the reason it's plausible, and it's a fascinating the logic here, uh, the reason it's plausible is because uh, we've just discovered how the atmosphere transmits heat around the Earth. And so here I am in England, which is really, really far north, and it's not nearly as cold as it would be if I were in Canada. And it's because of the atmospheric circulation. And so they'd made this discovery about atmospheric circulation, and they said, well, you could have a comet that gets superheated. This isn't true, by the way. This is not actually how comets work, <laughs> but it's a nice theory, an 18th century theory. Um, you could have a comet that's superheated around the sun, and the circulation would cool it, because one side's getting heated, one side's not, and that would keep it warm as it travels away from the sun. And so you could have a kind of balmy, temperate comet. And the aliens who live on that comet, they uh, would have a more understanding of how the solar system works because they travel in a wider orbit. And so while we just see our local neighborhood, we see Mars and Venus, they would see Jupiter, Saturn, and the sun, and they would travel in this wide orbit and see the whole solar system. And so Burgess concludes, and this is 1789, that there could very well be aliens on comets, and those aliens may very well have more information about the solar system than we do, and so they may very well be more advanced than we are. And I really did not expect the 1780s to find in the 1780s to find a book about space aliens, but by gosh, 1789, space aliens. Can we talk a little bit more about aliens? Um, <laughs> yeah, because yeah, what are the I mean, what are the ways that space figures most prominently today is in this kind of imaginative science fiction realm, right? Where mm -hmm. space is the location of a lot of stories that we tell that are often about ourselves, but it's it's a very important backdrop. What is the state of science fiction in the 19th century, to sort of use a, a slightly anachronistic term? How do you see these? So you see the aliens and the comet. What is sort of the uh, 19th century Star Trek equivalent? It's actually really interesting because if you go back to the 17th century, you get the plurality of worlds theories. And uh, mm -hmm. in the 18th century, you get a continuation of that. So Thomas Paine talks about this. I think it's in, um, in Age of Reason. I think Thomas Paine has this moment where he talks about basically using space aliens as a thought experiment. Like if space mm -hmm. aliens existed, what would their rights be? And this was a common way of like abstracting political rights from its contingent circumstances and saying, let's think about space aliens. It reminds me a little bit of when Ronald Reagan asked, uh, was doing an arms control treaty and asked um, if aliens attacked the Earth, if they attacked the United States, would the Soviet Union help? Um, and, and this becomes the way of abstracting the political conversation. And so that was common in the 18th century. In the early 19th century, though, um, we really get kind of wacky discussions of space aliens. And so uh, very early in the 19th century, there's uh, the New York Sun publishes of the Moon Hoax, what it later came to be called. It is a fictional account. Uh, it's not written by um, the astronomer Herschel, but it's it purported to be. Supposedly, at this remote observatory, uh, this group of British astronomers had looked up at the moon and they had seen winged bat people living on volcanoes, eating fruit. They published this in New York as news. And some of the accounts of people's reactions might well be apocryphal. But according to some of those accounts, people were genuinely concerned that, uh-oh, we've now found people on the moon, and they're bat-winged people who like to live on volcanoes and eat fruit. <laughs> and what do we do about this? Are they a danger to us? Could we maybe send someone up there as a missionary to bring the word of Jesus Christ to them? Like, how do we, how do we drag? And so you see a lot of, frankly, imperial anxieties. The moon looks an awful lot like the South Pacific. 
a lot of imperial anxieties being played out in this kind of space alien way. So it's a real change from that 18th century thought experiment. How do I think about natural rights? That's really interesting. And it kind of gets back to the whole point of your book in a lot of ways where all of these different actors are trying to control space and master the universe. There's a lingering fear that amongst the stars, there's a, a people or peoples out there who could in turn master us and we may not be able to successfully contest their dominion of the cosmos. And this fear persists. I mean, there's a Department of mm. Defense agency right now that's studying unidentified aerial phenomena, yeah. um, UAPs that have been seen by fighter jets and, and things like that. And the question is, are these a figment of our imagination? Are they, are they drones from some other adversary? Are they space aliens? Who knows? More conversations after the break. Over the course of their lives, George and Martha Washington enslaved more than 577 men, women, and children at Mount Vernon. They labored for the Washingtons' comfort and wealth while building families of their own, resisting their enslavement and self-emancipating when the moment was right. This is Intertwined, the enslaved community at George Washington's Mount Vernon. Look for it wherever you get your favorite podcast. Learn more at georgewashingtonpodcast.com. Gordon, what book are you reading right now? I just read uh, Pekka Hamelainen's uh, History of the Comanche Empire. Mm. Oh, um, nice. Which won the Bancroft Prize a little while back, and I, I hadn't read it just until now. And, and I'm, I'm thinking about wrapping some work on the Comanche into the next book project. It is called Engineering Peace, and it is a history of the word peacemaker in the 19th century. Um, because it's in the 19th century that the word peacemaker changes from a religious account of either Jesus Christ or of a person who is peaceful, and it becomes a technological tool for supremacy. Very cool. Yeah, we look forward to that. Yeah, it'll be a while, so so <laughs> you'll be looking forward to <laughs> No pressure. For yeah, no pressure. <laughs> well, who is the author you most admire? My doctoral thesis advisor was Sharon Harris whose work is in the 19th century, but very different from my work. But I think, to be honest, I learned how to be an academic writer, not just by getting feedback from her, but also just by reading her work. It is so methodologically and organizationally precise that she very early on sets out the parameters of, of her studies and is just crystal clear in her prose about what the study does, what it doesn't do, and how she plans to proceed and why she's proceeding in that way. And so there are lots of writers I admire, lots of writers I really love. But in terms of my own writing and learning the skills of scholarly writing, reading her books really was a, a profound education for me. We kind of touched on this uh, question in the first half of the program, or the first 75% of the program, I guess, as it were. What is the most exciting document you've ever found in the course of your research? Well, I already told you about space aliens from the 1780s. Uh, <laughs> so I'm going to give you a different exciting document uh, that I found. It's difficult to top that, to be yeah. fair. Yeah, yeah. I'm actually, I'm, I'm straining to top uh, space aliens from the, the 1780s. But, um, well, I'll give, you, I'll give you a document that is a little bit, on first glance, I think a little bit boring, but I found it tremendously exciting. Um, I was looking through... Civil War records. And so I, in the fourth chapter of the book, I explored this, this effort by the United States to publish in the middle of the 19th century, the American Ephemeris and uh, Astronomical Almanac. And so this is a document that is used by military navigators and commercial seamen to map and measure space. And my theory was that this document would be incredibly important during the Civil War, but I didn't really know if that was the case. 
And so I spent time at the National Archives looking through the Civil War records, and I saw them shipping this, this document to military outposts all through the war. Um, some of the records have been lost, but the records I do have, you can see that this is a document that they're sending to soldiers and sailors and, and various people all through the war, the Union Army is. One of the documents that I found really striking was um, the record of the seizure of a Confederate privateer. And after this privateer was seized off the coast of Maine, uh, they catalog almost everything that's seized with a quick summation. It's like a short paragraph. Here's what we found. But they precisely catalog two categories of items. One is guns and ammunition, and the other is almanacs. And the reason is because they were military hardware, and they needed to report on how much of this military hardware, these almanacs, um, these accounts of space and where the stars would be, how many they'd seized from a privateer. And it was this kind of confirmation that, yes, the people who are fighting this war really do take this seriously. The Confederate sailors are stealing these things. The Union sailors are trying to get them back. And this is military hardware, just like guns, just like ammunition. I bet that was a good feeling. <laughs> yeah, it was It was a nice, it was nice to have a theory kind of confirmed by the time. Look, have 19th century people reach out to me and say, yep, your theory of why how we think about this, your theory is, is accurate. At the end of the day, then, Gordon, how do you hope people remember your work? I hope that they think of it, that they think of it and not me in, in some sense, right? Like, I think, I think what I want is to create a, a useful map, back to map making, a useful <laughs> map for future scholars, for future readers in order to understand this past. And so for me, creating that that document that says, well, here's, here's a roadmap to, I went into the archives in, in 2018, 2019, 2017, I went into the archives and here's what I found. And if you follow me, um, I hope you find more and I hope you, you expand this history and I hope you have other stories to tell. And so I hope people do remember the work, but I hope they remember it in some ways in instrumental terms and, and they remember it as a tool that they can use to find out more. That might be my favorite answer to this question so far. That's oh, a good one. Huh. That's a really good one. That is a very, very good answer. Yeah. Well, Gordon, thanks so much for joining us. Allah, thanks for riding shotgun on this adventure. Uh, Happy and to be here. And thank you so much, Gordon. Thank you very much for having me. Thanks for joining us today on Conversations, a production of the Center for Digital History at the Washington Library. I'm Jim Ambusky, your host and producer. Jeanette Patrick offered editorial assistance with additional support provided by Mount Vernon's Media and Communications Department. Our music is Witch's Brew by C.K. Martin. Be sure to subscribe to Conversations on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you get your favorite programs. If you like the show, please rate and review it on your favorite podcast app. Find this and other episodes by heading over to our website at georgewashingtonpodcast.com. Thanks, and we'll see you next time. 